0: Welcome to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Hey everyone, how's it going? My name is Carl Brugeman. And I'm his brother Will Brugeman. This episode marks the beginning of our fourth season of doing this show. Wow, that is that's so
1: crazy. It's been such a blast doing this podcast, and we really have you guys to thank for
0: supporting us uh, throughout all these seasons and sticking with us, it's just been a blast. Absolutely, I mean, it's always been such a dream of ours to get to do anything where we really get to talk about music, and you know, it's really such a blessing to get to do it every week and uh, have such a good interaction with you guys. And also, we've just been so fortunate to speak with so many people in the industry. Uh, most recently, obviously, the Tommy Talarico interview was absolutely so special for us. And uh, this episode is. Quite- quite special because this marks the beginning of the launch of our official Supermarcado Brothers website
1: absolutely so
0: this is the first week where you can go to supermarcatobrothers.com and you can listen to all of our podcasts there you'll find the most recent episodes along with all the ones that we've done for like the past two years and also it's one website so when you're there you can find our original music bio you can also find news about maybe games or future projects that we're working on. So it's sort of like a comprehensive site that uh, should really allow you to see all the facets of stuff that we've been up to and uh, your RSS feed subscriptions will carry over. So if you're doing that, you shouldn't really have to notice much. But why don't you come by and check out the site anyway, just to see what we've been up to.
1: Right. And if you're one of the people who visits our our Blogspot page right now, we'll keep that up for, for a short time in the, in this transition period. And that will point to our new site. So yeah, we're right. very excited about that. So today's episode is called The Human Touch. Now, if you just look at that title, you may be confused as to what that really means when you're talking about video game music. Well, if you remember our first episode of our second season, it was called The History of Video Game Music. We kind of talked about video game music as a whole in the progression and the evolution of it. And we're going to be doing a similar thing today, but we're going to specifically be talking about the human elements of video game music. With the dawn of recorded performances... That really was something, and this is something that Tommy touched on last week, that really changed the landscape of
0: video game music. Absolutely, because I think with uh, any type of art or any sort of human expression, the reason why we enjoy it and connect with it are those elements, those tangible things that feel innately human that we can connect with on some sort of emotional level. Mm -hmm. And with video game music, oftentimes we think of you know early video game music being programmed and synthesized. So you may think, well, there's no human element to that. But what's interesting is we're going to be looking out the history of game music and showing not just recorded music, but also how game composers would use those synth technologies and those sound To emulate sound chips the sound. Exactly, to emulate the sound of a real human instrument and also to emulate the performance of an actual player. Right, so we're going to be going through all the
1: different generations and in between having some really nice discussion on the human touch in video. So let's start things off. All the way back in the NES, this is a game called Gremlins 2. Now, the reason we wanted to start off today's episode with this track is we wanted to give you guys an example of a really early track in video game history, which incorporates synthesized music in order to emulate a real performance, a real instrumentalist. And in this case, it's the bass. Now, this is a Sunsoft title.
0: Yeah, and we've talked before. uh, Sunsoft was a company where oftentimes their video game music would utilize that DPCM sample channel on the NES Mm -hmm. for, you know, sometimes you'd get drum samples, but in their case, they would often use it as pitched bass samples that they would utilize to free up another pitched channel so you could have more voices playing at once but more importantly so you could get in more accurate timbre of what an electric bass would sound right. like right in this particular track one of the reasons we
1: picked it is contrasting to most tracks you hear on the NES this doesn't feature that melodic of a bass line. This bass line, the function of it really is to lock in with the drums, and it really is something that you would hear an actual bassist play. So yeah, I think yeah, that's it's like
0: following um, good, you know, rock or jazz theory as far, as far as how a bass should function in a group.
1: Right. So we're going to start things off with Gremlins Two. This track is called Ventilation Shafts, composed by Nobuyuki Hara, Sunichi Saya, and Naoki Kadaka. You're listening to Ventilation Shafts from the NES game Gremlins 2, composed by Nobuyuki Hara, Sanichi Saya, and Naoki Kadaka, The first example today Of trying to emulate human expression In this case, we're mainly focusing on that bass sound Oh my gosh, it's so full, so thick And what's so great about having it, having it on the sample
0: channel Is it really has its own space in the landscape of this song Absolutely, and I think it just works out That it's going for that sort of electric bass Distorted bass sound You know, that sample channel is sort of notorious It's actually a one-bit sample channel right. So it incredibly compresses And in most cases, Distorts the sound, but it's perfect in this case because you want sort of a dirtier distorted bass sound. One thing that's so cool is the chords of this
1: piece are very demonic, and there's a lot of really big leaps, like tritone leaps, as far as where the root right. note is,
0: and having that sample channel bass accentuates that even more and really right. drives it home. Well, one thing I think is interesting is musically it's following sort of a lot of uh more childlike horror cliches. Yeah. Something it's very reminiscent of like the music you'd hear in the Ghosts and Goblins scene. But what I think is interesting is, I guess, we've talked about sort of the quote-unquote bands that are used in a lot of 8-bit and 16-bit music. But this is a case, and by band I sort of mean like a utilization of the instruments where each channel almost has a specific function of almost emulating an instrument. Mm -hmm. And this week, since we're talking about human touch, I think it's really important to touch about that Sunsoft band. The way that they would orchestrate their NES music was so specific so that they'd give each voice a specific part. For example, in the beginning you have that melody and Then you have that sort of chromatic. Well, what's so cool,
1: again, about this piece in a lot of these Sunsoft games, having the sampled bass, is the triangle is now open. The triangle is now open for whether it's counterpoint material or whether it's. For drums, yeah, it's like, doing those do like, like tom. Drum. Yeah. yeah,
0: they would do these really quick and low portamento falls with the triangle, and it would be cool because then you're able to use that sample channel for bass. And sometimes they'd switch up between bass and like snare hits occasionally. But then you have a really authentic sounding drum kit with a really authentic bass, and now you have all these channels freed up. It's just really impressive. Yeah, that was
1: a really fun way to start today off. So now we're going to move on to the Sega Genesis, and we're going to play a track from the game. Minnesota Fats' Pool Legend. Now, I think we've played a track or two from this before. Now, this features an incredibly authentic, sophisticated jazz soundtrack, especially for the 16-bit generation. So this is an early example of emulating real performance through jazz music, and as far as improvisation and soloing is concerned. Now, this track is called Solitude, and it's a really nice, pretty jazz ballad, but it features some pretty authentic improvisational soloing intermixed with the melodic lines. This game was composed by Shogo Sakai, Masaki Iwasaki, and Seiji Momoi. Let's take a listen to Solitude. excellent. This is Solitude from the Genesis game Minnesota Fats Pool Legend composed by Shogo Sakai, Masaki Iwasaki, and Saiji Mamoy. Man, this is incredibly fun. One thing that's so cool is you hear it, you hear it right here, is those really fast improvisational solo lines really? that are played in between the melody. So it's really authentic. Let's say you're a sax player and you're playing this ballad. Usually the second time you repeat the head, you're going to be doing a lot of those flourishes. And that's something that even goes back to classical music. Whereas a lot of times when a player would repeat the main A section, they would do it with flourishes in between.
0: And that's really something that you
1: hear a lot in jazz.
0: You know, to me, I feel like this brings up a topic of discussion that's very relevant nowadays. Uh, We find with a lot of uh, digitally sequenced music nowadays, there's this growing effort to sort of uh, humanize the quality of it Mm -hmm. by adding little imperfections or little musical colors that make something feel more innately human but what's interesting is I feel like a lot of video game sound programmers and engineers were some of the first people to have to deal with that digital issue of trying to give it enough, I guess, quote unquote, human quality so Mm -hmm. that you could relate to it as a piece of music. And I think this is an example where I'm not sure if this is MIDI performance or if it's programmed, but you can tell there's certain things where they program a late note here or there. And like you mentioned before, Carl, musically, what it's doing is very improvisational in nature. So you almost get the effect that these instruments are being played by real people. It's so impressive. I have a feeling they composed it at a really slow tempo
1: but when you crank those solos up there's this metric modulation where it's where it just keeps going faster and faster where it really just if you're not paying attention to it it sounds like someone's taking a solo. Right. It's really it makes you forget that no this is actually a synth chip that was programmed there's a lot of thought put into exactly. every single one. But
0: it's funny it's like it's programmed to sound almost imperfect because our brains really crave that. Absolutely. Well, kind of a nice segue to that. We're going to now play a track
1: from Sam and Max Hit the Road. Now, one interesting thing about this soundtrack is you can really hear the human performance as far as the MIDI performance goes. Now, this track was composed by Peter McConnell and in our interview last uh, two seasons ago, actually, the finale of our second season, right? right? We interviewed him, and he talked about, yeah, back in the day, they did all MIDI performance, and he didn't even really like to quantize it to the grid. Right. So this is an example of MIDI performance human Human performance being played through a Yamaha FM chip. So let's take a listen to Doug the Moleman from Sam and Max Hit the Road. listening to Doug the Mole Man from the game Sam and Max Hit the Road, and this track was composed by the wonderful Peter McConnell. Now, it's incredibly obvious when you listen to this that this was performed um, on a MIDI keyboard. A lot of the rhythms are not perfect. Far from perfect A lot of times like They're very early Or very late And we talked about In the past How in our opinion It kind of adds To the humor Because it's not A perfect performance It kind of feels A little more right. humorous
0: Well and I think What's so great about it Is um, these gentlemen You know Clint Bajakey And Michael landed And Peter McConnell They didn't really Have to program it To sound human That This was just Their genuine performance Through a MIDI keyboard but into that Yamaha FM chip. So, you know, Peter actually mentioned, you know, sometimes it's kind of funny or maybe even humorous to hear a jazzy, you know, soloistic performance on sort of an FM sound, like that... You know, that's something that you wouldn't necessarily hear, especially in video game music. But again, it's something we can relate to this. You know, it really feels like a piece of music because you can hear that sort of imperfect nature of it. And it's just a little imperfect. It's not the point where it's distracting or bad mm-hmm. by any means, but it's human. You know, it, it sounds like a real person playing music. And I feel like that's something that they were really trying to accomplish with early video game music. Because in general, we want to be able to listen listen to music and relate to it. The reason why we get excited about music or we're inspired by it is because there is that sort of connection of I'm connecting with another human that expressed themselves through the art of making music. And the emotions that that is making you feel
1: because a lot of these emotions are universal and we all can feel those. Right. So we're going to move on to another example of early video game music, which is trying to emulate human performance. This is a different take on it. This is for the Super Nintendo. This is a game called Super Adventure Island 2. Now, this soundtrack was composed by Akihiro Akamatsu, Sachiko Oida and Shinji Nakaya. Now we're going to play a really pretty track called Fairtina. Now this track features only one instrument and it kind of sounds like an electric piano, maybe a little bit of a harp sound here, and it's it's really interesting to hear just this lone instrument on the SNES and it's really emulating the sound of a left-hand and right-hand piano performance. Let's take a listen to Fairtina. track is called Fair Tina from the Super Nintendo game Super Adventure Island 2 composed by a bunch of different people and... This is very, very pretty. Now, I know the original Super Adventure Island was composed by Yuzo Koshiro, if you remember. Right. Had a very different style musically, a lot more um, dancey and upbeat. There are some upbeat tracks on the soundtrack, but this is very pretty. And it's rare that you hear a lone instrument all by itself on the Super Nintendo playing something that is fairly authentic.
0: Yeah, it's funny. When we think of a lot of 8-bit or 16-bit music, you know, we think about, oh, there's so many limitations. So what would they do to try to create as large a sound as possible? But what we think Mm -hmm. is interesting is There's a lot of valid music that's played with one instrument And in this case, the fact that they're trying to evoke an, a realistic authentic performance on one instrument it almost allows the technology to be utilized in the most impressive light because it really does sound like it's being performed because like you mentioned it has that very authentic left and right hand sound and the fact is it's just that one instrument and this is mm-hmm. a very believable sort of tiny Japanese well, what's, like electric piano What's sound. so cool and we're going to touch on
1: this guys as we go on this episode we actually have some really interesting things to, to discuss related to this but this is at a point where it's very obvious that it's fake and it's not going to trick you into thinking oh my gosh is this real you know that it's synth you know that it's fake right. but there's just enough of the human element in there that it really is powerful in a way Yeah. It's, so, I guess it's
0: It's more sort of like the the quasi performance element of it makes you feel a little bit more of an emotional mm-hmm. connection and in this case as opposed to some of the music we'll be talking about later or even earlier it's less about the performance and more about the composition position being designed around something a little bit more intimate and human well it was written on a piano it's right. very obvious and it's designed to be performed as right. if it were a piano or a keyboard like instrument So now we're going to move on to the
1: first track of today that features uh, some real recorded music. Now, with the dawn of CD-ROMs in the mid-90s, that really changed the face of music. So this is one of the early examples of a soundtrack that was utilizing that CD technology. And fitting, this game came out for the Sega CD. This is the game The Terminator, composed by Tommy Tallarico. Let's take a listen to a really cool rocking track called Future Shock. Cool. You're listening to Future Shock from the Sega CD game The Terminator. And this one is composed by Tommy Tallarico, one of the probably the best soundtracks for the Sega CD. I know that that was definitely a failed system, and most of the games and the soundtracks, in my opinion, are, are not very good. So this is one of the good ones.
0: Yeah, and um, what's a little funny, a little tidbit, is that I've always heard that this soundtrack is quite fantastic, and that this game is actually pretty good. I never actually knew that Tommy Tallarico was the one who worked on mm-hmm. it, so when we were doing research for this episode, and I'm like, oh, I should play something from you know that Terminator game, and I found it was Tommy, and I'm like, nice surprise. A small world, but yeah. yeah, this track is really fantastic, and it's doing a good job, because again, this is sort of the dawn of that time, where it's sort of a no-holds-bar As long as you can render it and put it on that disc, Mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of a no holds bar as far as what you can do. But what I really like is it's great and it's so perfect that it is Tommy because he's a man who respects the history of video game music. And the medium that he's composing for. So he's using real instruments, but only for added effect. Well, what's interesting is this does not sound different at all. From his work on the Genesis There's
1: a lot of tracks that I that I heard from him On the Genesis where he was trying to emulate A rock band right. and he had sampled Distorted guitar on the Genesis So this really isn't that different He's not forgetting the past He's right. just using the technology just to get further And further into that
0: realm well, And what's wonderful is it's, it's brilliantly composed For this medium But what's also great is that the choice of instruments now, it's so immediately clear. You hear the sound of that real guitar through that real amp with that authentic distortion, and it's just, yes. Your brain immediately knows, and you feel just such a stronger connection to the music into the game itself. And that's really something that I would say was rare. That was not the norm as far as composers
1: that were able to take the history of video game music and what works about their own compositional style and just keep going forward. A lot of people lost sight of that. A lot of people got too caught up in the technical fun of, oh, I can record real performance. I can make an actual song. And it wasn't really sounding like video game music anymore. So I think in this era, this is
0: one of the rare examples of something that actually works. And it it actually, surprisingly, holds up nowadays. Right. Well, because, I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but... Because of the rise of CD quality audio, it didn't necessarily correlate with the rise of um, actual performance, it just... Was sort of the rise of CD quality audio. So you weren't using sound chips, but not every soundtrack was using actual recorded players. Right. And this one doesn't use all recorded players. Right. Fake drums and bass, but real guitar. But again, like those drum sounds, I feel like what's so great is not only is it sounding real, but it's also sort of sounding 80s. It's trying to sound like the Terminator films and have that same sort of musical style, which I think is something that's so uh, subtle and specific you could definitely not get without real instruments.
1: Absolutely. Well, now we're going to move on to a PC game called Outlaws. Now, this was the first soundtrack for a LucasArts game that featured a significant level of actual performances by real players. Well,
0: isn't this also historically significant, Carl? You're this, saying there's a gameplay element to right, it Right. Now, well. this is
1: a first-person shooter, a Western first-person shooter. And this is actually the game, the first game ever to feature a, a scope, a sniper scope. Um, I know that I mean think about how incredibly prevalent that is in any sort of shooter there's a lot of sniping elements this is the very first game to feature an
0: actual scope it's so interesting it's one of those things we sort of take for granted from a Mm -hmm. gameplay perspective but it's really an interesting kind of weird concept I'm sure there are plenty of movies who sort of use that point of view when sort of showing a sniper but to use it in games it's almost one of the great achievements so this
1: was the first one this came out in 1995 and this soundtrack was composed by Clint Bajakian we're going to play a track Called The Last Gunfight, and this features some really awesome trumpet playing. Let's take a listen. Awesome! You're listening to the last gunfight, one of the final pieces of music in the PC game Outlaws, composed by the wonderful Clint Bajakian. And yeah, at this time, this was pretty unprecedented to have a soundtrack that featured so much real playing in 1995. That was not the norm for for PC games. There were some of that. Uh, there were some games that featured, um, you know, a lot of FMV stuff, and and a lot of times you'd have like an end credits that would actually right. be like an actual song. Um, But it wasn't very good. This is really one of the better examples of that. Well, again,
0: I think, you know, it's funny. We're playing, we're trying to find the best music from this era that's recorded, and we go back to these composers who've worked on the previous systems Mm -hmm. because it's not just about being able to make good music. It's about understanding the medium. And both Clint Bajakian and Tommy Tallarico, you know, understood that the foundation of game music is melody. In right. having a melody That you can sort of Resonate with emotionally And this that's This is a great melody Exactly But what's so great Is now we have These other elements Not only real performance But also specific methods Of production You know The way in which That trumpet is mic'd And compressed It almost has An old west sound to it Absolutely In the style of playing Has that sort of um, Quasi-American Militaristic But also quasi-Mexican Flavor It's perfect to And it. then that tremolo gets. Guitar- Is spot on the really open
1: low E minor on the acoustic guitar is just spot on the castanets and and I
0: feel like it's great. It's those things that I think the average person doesn't necessarily pick up or notice, but it's there in your subconscious when you hear it. You've heard it. Boom! I'm in a western right away. Yeah. And this soundtrack was
1: very ahead of its time. I mean, you listen to it today, and yeah, it sounds really modern. A lot of games have this kind of music nowadays, but in 1995, this was not the case. So this is definitely one of the soundtracks that was pretty cutting edge. And I'm glad we got to feature it on today's episode. And really
0: some absolutely wonderful performances there, too. Very absolutely. emotional performances. Yeah,
1: this feels like the emotional climax of this yeah, game. Yeah,
0: LucasArts really had some fantastic players at their disposal.
1: Yeah, we're going to now move on to The Curse of Monkey Island, and we're going to play a really cool jazz reggae piece called Mocking the Voodoo Lady in Voodoo Jazz, composed by Michael Land. Just some excellent performances. Every single instrument you hear is real, and it's absolutely undeniable when you listen to the effect that this creates. Let's take a listen to a really groovy piece called Mocking the Voodoo Lady. Absolutely excellent You're listening to Mocking the Voodoo Lady In Voodoo Jazz From The Curse of Monkey Island Composed by Michael Land Now If you're a fan Of the Monkey Island music uh, When this game comes out It's so awesome To hear this Because A lot of those Rhythmic and melodic Motifs And chord progressions you're you your hearing here are from the original Monkey Island game. Exactly. You know, da-dum, bum, yeah, bum. It's that's like part of Michael Land's right. style. Yeah, so to hear it now with real players and again, a clarinet solo yeah. and really just demonic playing like the bassoon right. and then there's a great well, slide it's guitar. it's such
0: expressive playing too. There's such a personality to it. You know, it, it really feels like raw human expression. It sounds like that clarinet is like singing. Like it's such a distinct voice. Well, it's just that great New Orleans Style of clarinet yeah. playing. With well, just- and one thing that I just want to talk about before we really dive into it is, like, as a piece of music. It's so perfectly Monkey Island. You know, Michael Land obviously worked on all the Monkey Island games before this, and they did use that sort of MIDI performance like we talked mm-hmm. about. But what's great is, you know, the musical landscape for that series was already established even back when they were using FM synthesizers. It was a jazz, a reggae soundtrack. And what's great yeah. is now that Michael Land's able to do that authentically, it sounds better, but it doesn't feel like it's abandoning the world that he created for the first two Monkey Island Again, games. Again, which is so rare in this in in this time period for composers
1: to just move forward, to to keep what works and just keep moving forward. And well, I think and that's... I feel
0: like the 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 connection, the link between all these, is that it's another composer who worked in that area Absolutely. and understands what composing for this medium is like.
1: So, he's not taking this technology for granted.
0: We're going to now move on to the PS1
1: to Castlevania Symphony of the Night. And this soundtrack was, of course, composed by the Castlevania veteran Machiro Yamani. Let's take a listen to a nice rocking piece called Prologue. <laughs>
0: are listening to Prologue from Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Uh, many consider this to be sort of the magnum opus of Castlevania games. Uh, musically, though, I consider it as uh, pretty good, but I don't think it's uh, the best Castlevania. I still think, mm-hmm. you know, one, two, and three are really the best. But what's great, though, is it is carrying on the tradition of Castlevania music. You have that sort of demonic, though church-esque quality of composition, but also very rocking. Which More is, rocking than it had ever been possible yeah, before, and that's what's cool is now we're doing it authentically. But uh, it's really good that we're playing a piece from this era because this sort of brings us into our next topic of discussion. You know, oftentimes when we talk about the dawn and rise of CD quality audio, while there was a lot of good music there was also a lot of music that didn't quite fit the bill. And this really has to do with a concept called the Uncanny Valley. Now, the Uncanny Valley was a term that was created in the 1970s by a Japanese roboticist named Masahiro Mari. And the reason why he discovered this is when he was creating his robots, he noticed a correlation between the more human qualities he gave to his robots in the way people liked them. Picture it like this. If you have an average, ordinary object that has no human characteristics whatsoever, People are sort of disinterested. They just sort of respond like, meh. But if you give it more human characteristics, it starts to look cute and we can relate to those human elements. We like it more and more. But the thing, the reason why this Uncanny Valley was created by this Japanese roboticist is he discovered that if you keep going farther and farther, eventually you reach a point of giving it human characteristics where it stops looking cute and starts looking like an imperfect simulation. And then it becomes creepy and off-putting to us. In that space is called the Uncanny Valley. It's called that because if you make a graph of the human characteristics being the x-axis and the y-axis being how much we like it mm-hmm. there's a steep drop off the clo- when you get really close to being a human until you can eventually overcome that and make something that's indistinguishable from the real thing and the reason why we're talking about this with game music cuz it can really apply to aspects of any sort of digital recreation absolutely and when we look at music especially from this era we tend to notice that when you have this cd quality audio there's this huge demand to sound like the real thing mm-hmm. to sound like real performances and if you go back to like the 16 bit era it was clearly not real human performances so those little human characteristics we like were cute. In, in fun yeah, it so was that cute. was before the, the steep drop yeah off. it was before that uncanny valley but now that we have cd quality audio it's just close enough where if things aren't perfect we notice it and it's off putting so let's Let's keep that concept in mind. Absolutely. So now we're gonna play a track that,
1: in our opinion, is a perfect example of the uncanny valley uh, in video game music, in the context of the history of video game music. We're gonna play a track from the PS1 game Spyro the Dragon, and this soundtrack was composed by Stuart Copeland, who was the drummer of the legendary band The Police. He did a lot of the Spyro games. Let's take a listen to a track called Sunny Flight. You're listening to Sunny Flight from the PS1 game Spyro the Dragon, composed by Stuart Copeland. And this is an example of the uncanny valley in music, specifically video game music. Now, really what we're talking about here is we're talking about the sounds of those instruments, of those samples. With the dawn of CD quality sound... Composers didn't have those limitations anymore. Now, this features all samples. It's None of this is real. It's all fake drums, fake synth sounds. And that's really what we're talking about here is that it's too good to be considered... A chip tune, or to be right, cute, right? Because
0: we can immediately identify what it's trying to sound like, but it's not good enough to sound like real, actual performed music. Exactly. And what you hear, if you hear a modern soundtrack where you can't tell if it's a real orchestra or if it's samples, that's an example of something that's overcome the uncanny valley and has reached the peak where it's indistinguishable. So I would from say most thing. modern video game music. I would right. when you when you think about orchestral video game music, about
1: half of it is not even real orchestras. There's a lot of sampled libraries in. And they're so good at this point where they've definitely crossed over the uncanny valley. You cannot tell and you
0: can enjoy them a lot. Well, because part of it is knowing how to use and put your technology in the best light, utilizing it so that you can make use of the best thing that samples can do while also sort of disguising the areas where maybe they're not the best. And in this area... a- a- like composers were just so excited to have this such an increased amount of fidelity and one thing we just wanted to say is we're not saying this is a bad track or a bad soundtrack
1: uh quite the contrary i think this is very effective but it's the type of thing and this is just a microcosm of this ps1 sega cd era of game music where when you listen to it nowadays oh my gosh, it really doesn't hold up technically. It really sounds like, oh, this sounds like the mid-90s.
0: Right. We've really come a long way. Well, it's ironic, and we've talked about it before, that sometimes 8-bit music holds up more than this. Because this is that thing where it's, it's the Uncanny Valley. It's so close to the real thing that it's immediately dated. Almost like how a cartoon like Pinocchio looks just as good now as it did when it came out. Right. But if you look at Shrek, you know, we've gotten so much better in computer graphics that that just doesn't look quite right. And the to thing us. is, in there's a lot of music like this in modern video games, but
1: none of it will sound this way. It'll all sound better nowadays. There's better samples. There's better use of production elements and effects that these composers can use to make something that sounds more human. And mm-hmm. that's what's so interesting about this era of really early CD audio and
0: games. And if we notice there's not as tight in orchestration. Like we talked about that sort of band with the LucasArts games or even like like back with Sunsoft there's a clear understanding of what this group is but with that Spyro track it just sort of felt like any instrument that the composer wanted he would just put in there with no concept of what makes it human what makes it sound like real people in a room playing music and this is the era where we really start to kind of lose that a little bit in games. Because part of the problem is that at that time it was really exciting to use those
1: samples and it was probably a lot of fun to be able to get it to sound as good as it did but now
0: limitation of voices or anything. Right.
1: So now we're at the point in music where we're able to say, okay, you know what? I really want to evoke this. So it's not as big of a deal anymore. Oh, I can have a pretty good sounding drum sound. That's a given. You have to have that. That's not special anymore. You know, like you really have to go above and beyond to try to get a certain sound. Where here it was just so fun. This was the dawn of when all this was possible. So it's really understandable that this music isn't going to hold up as well. So We're going to move on to Final Fantasy IX, and this is also for the PS1, but this is a few years later. Now, this is an excellent track. This is an example today of sung vocals. This song is sung by a Japanese singer, so we definitely wanted to have a track like this in today's episode. When you think about JRPGs, how many of them have really nice um, female Japanese singers uh, to sing these really beautiful ballads. Right. So we really wanted to have one of these today. This is a song called Melodies of Life, composed by Nobu Uematsu and performed by Amiko Shiratori. Enjoy. This is Melodies of Life from the PS1 game Final Fantasy IX, and I believe this came out around 99 or 2000, so near the end of the PS1 era, and you can really tell that because this is really well done. This is a really good example of human performance in an era when a lot of it wasn't really done to the best effect, and this is something that does hold up. I mean, yes, it's cheesy, it's a Japanese pop ballad, but it's authentic in that genre. And for me, hearing it with Japanese lyrics is way more preferable to actually hearing the English. I don't want to hear the lyrics here. There's
0: something special about a real human vocal. Uh, I recently saw a documentary, a film called 20 Feet from Stardom, and it was about um, background vocalists from the 50s and 60s and their work even today and what it's been like uh, doing live performances and being recording artists. Mm -hmm. But one thing that they mentioned in that film, something I really liked, is they said that the human voice is the most natural innate form of expression musically and it's true because it's something we all have a voice and most people are born you know most people sing And what's so great is when you hear that human voice, it's the most immediate connection to another person. And I think that's why it's so effective in video game music, because there's often this idea that game music is so separated from real human artistic moments.
1: Well, I'd like to talk about the use in this particular game as a credits. This is the end credits theme, by the way. So the context of this game where you played this long journey, most of which, none of which has real singing. A lot of it is synth when you get to the end and you hear a real singer, they yeah. it really is emotional, and oh, it's a totally. fitting goodbye to this world, because Final Fantasy really creates a world that people right. absolutely love. Well,
0: And especially, if you look at it in context, it's really following the cues from Japanese film music. Again, someone like Joe Hisaishi, like, the end of a lot of his music does feature female vocalists where Mm -hmm. maybe a lot of the earlier themes are just orchestral but again like you mentioned the fact that this is all real instruments beautiful orchestral string playing and oboe solo playing that's absolutely gorgeous it's such a fitting goodbye for such a beloved series.
1: The reason why this holds up as opposed to something like Spyro obviously they're very different is that this is spot on to this genre if you enjoy J-pop music that's exactly what this is. This isn't trying to emulate j-pop it is j-pop everything about it is spot on to that genre mm-hmm. this could be played maybe it was on the radio at this time in japan and no one would have known right. anything so that's one
0: of the reasons why. Well, and it has actual real instruments where right it's like there right. really is no substitute for the actual thing right so now we're going to move on to this week's track of the week
1: very exciting stuff here. We're going to play a track from Shenmue for the Sega Dreamcast. Now this game was composed by a slew of very talented composers, but this specific track we're going to play was composed by Asamu Murata. Let's take a listen to a really beautiful solo piano piece called Nozomi's Confession. Enjoy. This is gorgeous. You're listening to Nozomi's Confession from Shenmui, composed by Osamu Morata. Beautiful. Now, really, there is no substitute for real performance. This is obviously a real grand piano being performed and being miked, being recorded in a really authentic way. There's nothing about this that really screams video game music other than how dang melodic it is. But very poppy It's definitely something that It it definitely holds up nowadays I mean, this is not gonna really age I mean, when you listen to this music You can't really tell whether it's from Japanese film, like an anime Or a video game It's something that is very colorful Very imaginative A lot of fun to listen to
0: yeah, absolutely. And on this episode, I know that we're talking a lot more about sort of the maybe seemingly superficial aspects of music, like performance mm-hmm. and what have you. Um, So it may be easy to lose track of what musically is just so great. And this is a track that really reminds me that it's like, you know, you really don't have anything if the song isn't good. And this right. is an example where the piece is fantastic. So well, this... that performance, that real human performance is icing on an already delicious cake. Exactly.
1: The reason why this track is the track the week, we're not necessarily saying it's the best song today. I mean, there's a lot of great songs today. I mean, that Gremlins 2 track might have been my favorite song this week. But really, the reason why I think we picked this today for the human touch is you have a great song compositionally, notes on a page, very solid. You have a performer that's able to take that and elevate it through his or her real performance, putting their own emotion into it. And that is the ticket. That is what
0: creates... Those tear-jerking moments, right? And I feel like I I want to give extra points to this one because so much video game music, even real recorded music, is done to a click track. It's right. on the grid, you know. It's timed out rhythmically, perfect because that's the most easy to use in a development system. But what's mm-hmm. great is in this piece, it's rubato. You know, there's push and pulls with the tempo, and, it's, and it, it slows creates tension, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's absolutely. Um, it's perfect. And again, it's just, it's kind of like how we talked about with that Super Nintendo track from Super Adventure Island. Like, which was to the grid, by the way. Right. But what's nice is sometimes it's nice to have a really intimate thing. You know, this is just a piano performance, mm-hmm. it's very intimate. But again, since we're talking about the human touch, that intimacy is really sometimes what we crave for an and, emotional and speaking connection.
1: about the, the rubato, I mean, one of the things that this real grand piano adds to the sound is when you're playing rubato, can't you hear the sound of the pedal? You can right. hear the sound of the hammers loosening and that oh, is something absolutely. that you just well, cannot you can, hit anywhere the, else. the
0: resonance of all the mm-hmm. notes on the soundboard is something yeah. that i really feel like they still haven't captured perfectly with modern day sampled pianos
1: right. so now we're going to move on to a really cool pick this is for the ps2 this is a game called unlimited saga and this soundtrack was composed by masashi hamazu let's take a listen to a really cool piece called battle theme one and this piece features a real violinist as well as some real piano mixed in with synth sounds enjoy example of what human performance can add to a piece. This is so cool and groovy, and hearing the real acoustic guitar on the right channel playing those really funky chords mixed with the real harsh attack of that pretty dry violinist...
0: Combined with the kind of the techno sounding synth is a lot of fun. It's a great combination. Yeah, very eclectic production and instrumentation. But I would still argue the reason why something like Spyro to me fits in the uncanny valley, and something like this doesn't, is the fact that you have synth instruments mixed with real instruments. The synth in the fake strings feel intentional. Yes. Also because they're not trying to emulate human performance. Their attack is immediate, and there's a very uh, sort of pop quality to them. It's very intentional.
1: That, that is the difference, I would say, and and again, it's not fair to compare this with Spyro because it came out five years later or whatever right. it may have been. So I'm not. We're not saying that it's
0: necessarily right. fair a comparison, but well, and I feel like another thing is yes, it's an eclectic variety of instruments, but. It still has the heart in the um, fundamentals of video game music. The fundamentals of this medium right. down. You know, it's really melodic, it's really rhythmic, you know, it's doing all the sort of things that video game music has always done to be effective.
1: Yeah, and again, we're we we do not we definitely don't want to pick on Spire of the Dragon. I mean, I like a lot of that music. Really, that was just a, a one example that we could have picked. Right. I mean, there's so many. Soundtracks well, I mean, hell, even Symphony
0: of the Night has a lot of music that Absolutely. I think fits in the Uncanny Valley, a lot of the Mega Man. X games from the PS1 and PS2. One thing that I... Because
1: this week, I listened to tons of PS1 music because I was really interested in that uncanny valley. I was trying to find examples of that. And what I found so interesting is one of the things that a lot of composers did at that time to mask the sounds of those fake samples is they added way too much reverb. If -hmm. you listen to Symphony of the Night or a lot of those PS1 soundtracks, they're drenched in this digital reverb. Like
0: Silent Hill, I remember, did that a lot to mask the fakeness of the the solo violin samples Mm -hmm. so now we're going to move on
1: to an excellent soundtrack this is voodoo vince this game came out for the xbox and this is composed by steve kirk and this soundtrack features a really fun gypsy jazz soundtrack incredibly authentic stuff here pay particular attention to the violinist here let's take a listen to back stoop You're listening to Back Stoop from the Xbox game Voodoo Vince, composed by Steve Kirk. What's so great is these are jazz players that Steve or whoever on the sound team hired to play this soundtrack. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so evident that these are Jazz casts. Well, I
0: just—it's so lucky for video games, you know, to talk about the human touch. You know, what's so great is the technicals, which are so associated with every aspect of making a game, both in the visuals, gameplay, even music. Like, I feel like the technicals really take a step back. The production is really not doing much. It's They're just like putting the mics up and letting these <laughs> performers letting the guys do have do what they want. It's such a dry sound, like you mentioned before. There's no reverb to it really at all. Yeah, it's so pure and dry. I gotta say, in this past year. I I've really been on a gypsy jazz kick. Um,
1: things like, obviously, you know, like the legendary Django Reinhardt. I've just been mm-hmm. listening to a lot of his music, and there's something so fun about this kind of jazz music because, for me, one of the reasons I've been getting into it recently is it sounds like video game music to me. There's something mm-hmm. so well, it's so melodically yes. motivated, right? And even the soloing is all—they're very melodic solos.
0: You <laughs> yeah, know? it's so crazy. Like they're so—they um, have such an innate sense of melody to them yeah. that even their soloing is just like. You could put it on paper and it's Sometimes it's perfect. hard to tell. Is this a solo or is
1: that of the written line? Yeah. Sometimes the line the line, no pun intended, gets blurred. <laughs> so we're gonna now move on to World of Warcraft. And I think we've played one track from this a long time ago. It's a soundtrack that I know that I was kind of pleasantly surprised by I mean, a lot of times when you have a game that is so huge, sometimes it may lead you to think that it might be overrated. And
0: well, for connoisseurs of video game music, it's very easy to have a bias against modern uh, games, especially something that, like you mentioned, is so yeah, huge. But, but it's interesting, Tommy actually mentioned that uh, this was a soundtrack that he's very, been very impressed yeah,
1: with. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot of you out there that this soundtrack means a lot to you. We're going to play an interesting piece called Shady Rest. I believe this is one of the tavern themes in World of Warcraft. I know there's a lot of t- great tavern music. I know we played a track before that was kind of nice and Gaelic. Yeah, this yeah, this is a Gaelic. Interesting combination of instruments here. This track was composed by David Arkenstone. Let's take a listen to Shady Rest. <laughs> gorgeous. You're listening to Shady Rest, composed by David Arkenstone from World of Warcraft. Now, I know this was not featured on the original soundtrack. I believe there was a separate soundtrack which came out, which featured only the tavern music. Right. Um, And for me, I mean, uh,
0: little experience I have with the music of World of Warcraft, I got to say, I love the tavern music. Yeah, (laughs) it's really fantastic. And I think something that's great just to be an advocate for recorded music, you know, obviously there's people say, Video game music was better in the eight and sixteen bit era. Mm-hmm. Well, there may be some of the best themes there, but something that's so great about having access to recorded instruments—if you want to create that Gaelic sound, that sort of Dorian modal thing—that so many games do when they want to have that Lord of the Rings sort you of can timeless do it fairy fully tale quality—really put right. you in that world. And you can yeah. do it musically, but also the fact—the instrumentation here is pretty authentic. You have that lute, which is great, doing both the arpeggiation. Yeah, it's interesting. You have
1: you got some great instruments here. You have the lute. The solo violin, you have a really nice flute sound. Right. And you also have a
0: lower string instrument as well. Yeah, it almost sounds like a viola. And Mm -hmm. maybe it sounds almost like two violas, like a very intimate chamber viola section with that solo flute. And their intonation isn't quite perfect with each other, which has an old-time sound to it. One thing interesting about modern video game music is sometimes game companies
1: would hire composers outside of the video game industry to compose really authentic music music like mm-hmm. i i remember braid for example remember yeah. that great track we played
0: that was composed by a lady who doesn't i can't remember her i think shira common was right. her name she's not a video game composer. Well, and that's another one talk about that viola that features a solo viola mm-hmm. which is just a different enough of a sound it has but, this dark sort of right yeah but that it. shira common
1: she was an act she is an actual authentic performer and composer of like gaelic
0: music right so it's, it's cool how you're able to get those people into this world it's you know? funny how Whenever we want to create a world like that We always immediately jump to Dorian mode And Gaelic music There's some something about like the old country And the old school Scotch-Irish like, sensibility Absolutely So now we have to feature a
1: funk track That is <laughs> the last thing we really haven't talked about today As far as the dawn of real performance How many awesome funk soundtracks are there in video games? One of the most fun genres of music for me personally Just to listen to But when you have a great funk soundtrack, Track in a video
0: game it makes you feel so well, good funk is all about the human characteristics Absolutely. it's about being a little bit late and it's no, all about being human. i would
1: say funk is one of the top
0: genres that was emulated in the 8 and 16 bit <laughs> era i think it, there's a reason for that mm-hmm. we wanted to achieve that yeah. ability of sounding like human so if you make it sound funky you know you're right there you're right in this so this
1: is one of my personal favorite funk soundtracks in recent years this is a game called De blob composed by John Guscott, and I believe it came out for the Wii, if I'm not mistaken. Let's listen to an incredibly obviously funky track. This is The Funky Blob. Cool is this? This is the Funky Blob from Dublob, composed by John Guscott. Now you have the excellent brass coming in here, but that was my favorite section. That really catchy guitar oh. line. Well, that
0: it's like that harmonized, syncopated riff. Is and then you have so that
1: lone B three organ just holding <laughs> on that note the whole time. Yeah. It's excellent. One thing so cool is how long did they build up that groove? Like, I wonder some of you are maybe thinking, is this ever going to change? Well, it's, it's just like...
0: all about that groove.
1: <laughs> oh gosh. Well, and, something
0: that's so cool about the Blob Games is uh, you see how I did that instead of saying the da Blob Games, I said da nice Blob job, Games. Will. Thank you. No, (laughs) one thing that's so great about them is they're uh, so artistically appealing in all aspects. You know, the gameplay is so simple. It's using motion control to move around. It's just very simple. Again, human. Visually, it's very striking. The whole point of the game is you're trying to take a land that's completely void of color, and by moving around, you spread paint and color the environment. So are you saying you spread funk as well? Yeah, you also... Yeah, what's so cool is like... It's funky because it has this sort of like freedom, this youthful energy to I it. I think that's something that it's a lesson we can all learn. Spread the funk with your brethren,
1: ladies and gentlemen. Awesome. We're going to move on to the last track we're going to talk about today. This is from a very recent game and really a game that has been getting a lot of praise for the soundtrack. This is
0: Journey for the ps3 well 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 deserved too. the entire game is a very it's a it's a benchmark in gaming it's an artistic masterpiece and uh i think the soundtrack does have a big part to do with that so we're going to play a piece i believe the
1: first track you hear in the game this is called naissance composed by austin wintry Thank you so much, guys, for joining us for our very first episode of season four. This is a really nice change of pace in an episode that we've had such a good time researching and preparing and recording for you guys today, so hopefully you've really enjoyed this.
0: Yeah, and as I listen to that uh, gorgeous uh, bass flute melody from this track, I it really feels powerful because this is the first track you hear in the game. And it really marks the beginning of a journey, and what's exciting, here we are at the beginning of our new website and of a new season I feel the same sort of excitement for an exciting journey to come so thanks so much you guys for joining us on this very interesting discussion that we've had so far today I feel like we've really sort of gone into some of the aspects and why it's always important to retain human qualities in any artistic medium absolutely well
1: said Will just want to remind you guys one more time to head on over to our brand new website and once again that address is supermarcadobros.com you can check out our podcast as well as our original music and keep up to date on all of our musical endeavors. So thanks so much for your support. Next week we have a really exciting episode, Konami. We're going to be featuring some of the best music by that legendary game company. Oh,
0: I look forward to it. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm old Brueggemann. Have a great week, you guys. Peace out.